Today on Flusterclucks, we're checking in on tweens and teens at this stage of the pandemic. How do we support them best when they face challenges around everything from getting enough sleep, being too isolated, finding their motivation, and still staying connected to their parents? We'll answer that question in this week's episode of Flusterclucks with Lynn Lyons, the show for real talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. Hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. I've been a therapist for 30 years. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. Parenting can be a Flusterclucks, and I'll help you find your way. So Lynn, here we are, and it's a Friday, and it's a new episode, and many podcasts are not releasing new episodes right now, and they're going silent. But we've just decided that emotional management is more critical right now than other times. Right. And I think that our topic for today is really so relevant because of the high emotional energy that's sort of zipping around us. I mean, I can feel it, you can feel it. And I think, like you say, this idea of emotional management, you know, we're going to talk about teens today. And particularly, teens are very aware of what's going on. They're asking questions and they're very plugged in to all of the uncertainty and all of the upheaval around us. So where are our teens right now and what do we have to pay attention to? I also just want to remind listeners that we put out an episode about election anxiety and the ways in which parents must really approach the anxiety uh, that they feel about current events and how they talk about it at home. There are right ways and wrong ways of how you should model responding to very stressful news. And so that episode is a good resource if you feel that you need extra support right now, because the ideas that you talked about back then are no less relevant right now. It's just a good reminder. You can listen to it just to sort of get your feet back under you here as we're as we're interacting with our kids. I think you've referenced this to me, Lynn, that teens and young adults seem to be having the hardest time managing the pandemic than other age groups. Right. And it's been interesting. If you look at the research and the information that's coming out, you can sort of track how things have been going. Because way back in May and July, there was research that was saying from teens that they were saying that they were actually more lonely and isolated in 2018 than they were in the beginning of the pandemic. They were really saying like, no, I felt, I, I felt worse in 2018 than I do now. It, we weren't asking them how did you feel in 2018? This is ongoing data. But then in October, more data came out and we started seeing the numbers worsen in terms of 50% of kids reporting that their mental health was worse. And I think what I'm seeing now in my practice is it's been interesting through this because there has been different phases of this, but they're tired out. They're having a really hard time engaging with their remote learning at this point. Parents are really concerned. I'm hearing the word motivation over and over and over again. And they're just desperately missing social interaction. Right. And their levels of loneliness, of depression. And they're also, I'll tell you this too, they are getting really irritated with the adults. Because they right now, in terms of everything that's going on in all sorts of different ways, the teenagers are like, people, what are you doing? 
And I'm hearing that a lot too, which is not necessarily a bad thing because it's kind of energized, but they're talking about a lot of what's going on and how they feel like we're not getting it done. One of the things as I continue talking with you about the mental health stats throughout the pandemic and how different ways children are suffering and teens are suffering, parents really have to understand that the home is an emotional ecosystem. Absolutely. And you know, if you think about how we're getting worn out by it, how we're getting frustrated. You know, right now, as we said, there's so much emotion all over the place. If we look at, you know, we talked about the holidays and dealing with that, right? You know what was a really hard day for a lot of families? January 4th, because kids had to go back to school. People had to go back to work. And it just was this slap in the face of sort of like, oh my gosh, we're still here. Being able to recognize parents, how you're managing all of this and what you're doing to take care of yourselves, of course, remains primary. How are you conveying to your kids the emotional management and or stress and or your isolation, your frustration? It really does become such a strong feedback loop for sure. So we got a lot of questions about Mm -hmm. the teens of our listeners. And before we get into a few of them, I was wondering if when you think of all the teens that you're talking to in your practice, how would you categorize the common themes you're seeing of how teens are coping right now? I guess I could put it into two broad categories, which one is that teens that I would say are coping with it normally, and I'm making air quotes with my fingers. So they're dealing with a lot of the normal development stuff, developmental stuff that we would see between teens and parents and autonomy and all that kind of stuff complicated by the pandemic. And so they're struggling, but they're doing okay. And they are able to talk about what's going on. They're able to put it into a context of sort of like, oh, this is so unique and this sucks and I hate this. And then there's a group of teens that aren't doing Okay. And those are the teens that were probably pretty anxious before. And these are the teens also that maybe had a hard time with social connection. So they're feeling more isolated. And also the reality of it is, just like you said, the family is so important, is that if you were a teenager that had a strong connection with people in your family, your parents, your siblings, and you guys have been sort of bonding together and making the most of this, those teens are are doing better than the teens where there was a lot of conflict and a lot of unresolved issues in the family, and they've continued during this pandemic, and now there's just no escape. So for those kids being away from their house, going to school or working at their jobs or whatever, that was really important to them. And so those are sort of the categories of teens that I'm seeing right now. Let's just talk right now sort of about the kids that are doing okay under the circumstances. What do they say? Well, they're bored. They miss social interaction. They're concerned about what we would consider sort of normal teen things. And it's certainly exacerbated by this. What I hear the parents talk about is they're worried about their kids spending a lot of time in their rooms. Sleep issues come up a lot. Whether or not these kids are able to get their driver's license. Right now, if, if you have a high school senior, anybody who's listening right now has a high school senior knows that college applications are due and that kids are waiting to hear from colleges. Also, if you've got a kid who's a senior in high school who's going to make another step in life, maybe not 
specifically going to college this year, but thinking about a job or thinking about what they're going to do next, now that we've hit the second half of senior year, they're starting to worry about all those things. Now, that's normal, even in not, not in a pandemic. Second half of senior year is when they start worrying about these things, but it's a little heightened, of course. And then interestingly, too, who would have believed we'd still be here? The seniors are starting to think about the end of the school year stuff. So they're starting to worry about graduation and prom. They're pissed off that they can't enjoy their senior slide, their senior spring. They say, when you're a freshman and a sophomore and a junior, you so look forward to having that senior spring where you're able to sort of coast and the weather is nice. And they're really starting to dread that they're not going to have the senior spring that they feel like they've put in all their payments and now they're ready to cash it out and they're they're not going to get it. So with parents who are dealing with high schoolers that are in sort of that normal category, I think there's a few things I'd pay attention to. One is if if they're spending time in their rooms, and I've said this before, but just as a reminder, it really is okay for them to be in their rooms, not 24 hours a day. But if you feel concerned that they're in their rooms and they're not hanging out with you in the living room, that they don't want to watch a movie with you, that kind of stuff, that's really okay. In the normal course of their day, they wouldn't be spending all this time with you in the house anyway. And they're really just looking for some privacy and they're really just looking for some friend time that's separate from you. So I wouldn't demand that the family be together all the time because I'm hearing that from some families and it's just not helpful. On the other hand, listen for ways in which they are reaching out to you. And I still want you to sort of plant those seeds and make those invitations, even if they reject them, This is an important thing to remember about teenagers is that even if they reject your invitation, they still heard the invitation and that's important to them because it means that you're paying attention, that you're saying to them, hey, I'd like to spend time with you. Now they may say, oh my God, I don't want to do that, but they still heard you say, I enjoy your company. And maybe one in five invitations they'll accept. Maybe it's one in 10, maybe it's zero in 10, but make the invitation. Think about the ways that you are going to be interested in what they're doing, that you're going to be curious about what they're doing, that you're going to show signs or show initiative in some way of empathizing with what they're going through. They're tired of being lectured, I will tell you that. They're tired of being talked to about how they have to get their schoolwork done and how blah, blah, blah. They're done with that. Reach out make opportunities for connection, and see what comes back to you. And it's okay if a lot doesn't come back. The invitation is really helpful. This reminds me of one of the listener questions that we received just talking about connection and isolation. Mm -hmm. This listener writes, I believe she's actually a school counselor. Students are home alone at 12 to 14 years old in, in most districts three days a week, every week. And what supports are in place to address this? It's challenging enough to be a tween or a teen in today's world, but this added isolation is debilitating for some, particularly when most families have two working parents. That's a huge issue with many families because kids who are remote learning are, if they're old enough to be home alone, they're home alone doesn't necessarily mean it's a great thing just because they're old enough to do that. So I think parents, if you've got kids that are home alone during the day, during during their learning, here's, here's a few concrete tips. Pay attention to how you come in the door. 
I was talking to uh, one of my teenage clients the other day who is delightful. And she is a teenager and she's got a, a teenage sibling. She said her parent went back to work after a period of time of not being at work. And she's remote learning right now. She said she worked all day. She felt like she got a ton done. She ran some errands for her mom. And she said, I was truly so excited to see my mom at the end of the day because we'd been alone all day. And so she came in the door and we went out to greet her. And she said, truly, I was excited to see her. And she immediately started harping on us about whether or not we got our work done and what we had to do. And she said it was such a bummer. I know this mom probably came home from a stressful day and was walking in the door. But parents, truly, if your kids are home alone and you're not in the house, the moment you walk in the door is a critical moment for you to pay attention to in terms of your emotional state and what you say to your kids and even just the smile on your face. And, you know, for those of us, you know, if you're in a, a marriage or a partnership with somebody, right? If you're in a good mood and your partner comes walking in the door and is a crap mood, you're like, ugh. So pay attention, parents, if your kids are home alone, how you come in the door. We have to make sure, too, that we're paying attention if, if there are kids that are really struggling if they're not doing any of their work, if you're getting emails from school that they're not signing or logging on at all to their Zoom meetings, the school counselor is asking what resources are available. You know, well, not many, unfortunately. There are some schools who have put some things in place, and I know a few schools have done this around here in, in where I live, is that if they identify a kid as falling way behind or struggling, they are picking one or two days a week that that child is in school with some assistance, seeing adults having structured time to get their schoolwork done, and probably even more importantly, just getting them out of the house. That's not possible everywhere, but in a hybrid model, having kids in school more days than less if they're in trouble is one of the resources that schools are trying to provide. But there's all sorts of equity issues here. There's all sorts of issues of kids not having the available bandwidth truly to to get their work done, not being able to log in. It's just really hard. My husband and I and my two kids, we're all home. So we're remote Mm -hmm. working and we're remote learning. And throughout the day, some days, it's funny because if you've worked in an office before, you learn the unspoken cues when you sort of go to go and get a new glass of water from the water cooler and you want to chat and you stop by someone's desk and you quickly give the, the other signal, I'm busy and I can't chat. Yeah. And then and then you gracefully like just keep walking. Okay, yeah, see you later and you and you don't bother them. Like you learn those cues. And I was laughing with my husband like, how do we teach our kids <laughs> to respond <laughs> to those cues <laughs> that you know, we're we're busy. This is one of the challenges that we're facing. We are sensitive to connecting with our kids when they, especially when they reach out for connection. And yet it's also our work day and we're in the middle of phone calls and projects and that fine balance. And I think that that's a line that every parent is probably struggling with right now because it's simply not practical to give them attention at any moment and to come up with that language that doesn't make them feel rejected. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. It sort of it reminds me of uh, thinking about my childhood, where my dad had two different voices 
so he had the voice of his office voice and he also had his dad voice. So it's so it's challenging even for adults. Again, I like directness. I like talking to kids about this. I think you can have an interesting conversation with kids about how it's so interesting that we are in school mode and work mode and play mode and parenting mode all together in the same house. And to even talk about those signals that we give off to say to your kid, how do you know that dad doesn't want to be disturbed? Or how do you know that mom's on an important call? And really sort of teach them those messages. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free apple that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. I think that it's important to talk about this. Some parents don't feel that it's a good thing to to establish those boundaries. Mm. Some parents think they're always supposed to be available. 
So I think that making sure that we feel okay establishing those boundaries is okay. Yeah. In the old days, if if a parent was on the phone, I mean, I remember being given very clear boundaries that if I was, that they were on an important call, right? And this idea that you'd be like, mom, 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 right? There are always kids like that. And I, w- I, would, I would think like, God, their mom doesn't tell them to be quiet and not interrupt them on the phone. I mean, I think those boundaries were clearly established in my house. You know, I, I think that's such an important point. Uh, my office is attached to my house. I work I- in my house. And even as little kids, my kids knew when that door was shut that unless there was a significant emergency that they didn't come in. We even had a code. We went over it. If I was with a client and I heard three knocks on the door, that meant there was an emergency. But anything else, they didn't come and knock on my door. How many knocks over the course of their childhood did you get with three knocks? I think it only happened once, actually. And I mm-hmm. think it, was, it wasn't an emergency, but somebody had blocked somebody in in the driveway and there was something very urgent that somebody had to get to. And so they needed to tell me that they needed to move the car. Oh, so they used it well. Yeah, they used it very well. Yeah, but it, but it wasn't like, he took my Legos. And they were, you know, they were young when I started working in this office, but they understood. I think what we're talking about here is this meta point that in order for all of our days to go smoothly with our teens, with our kids, with connection and with work and productivity, we have to front load boundaries so that everyone is cooperating and moving in the same direction and understanding that certain things have to happen and that parents aren't available at all times once they hit a certain age. And if we're thinking about what we have experienced during the pandemic and what we can take from this, because there are so many things that we've learned, whether we like it or not, I think that is one of the interesting things, isn't it? Is that families that don't have any boundaries are really noticing it during this particular time because we are so close together. And where do you have to establish those boundaries? How do you teach your kids? I love that, that you're saying that, Robin, that you're not available to them 100% of the time. And then also the flip side of it is parents making sure that when you are available, that you're present and that you're connected and that you're showing them the difference between when I can be here for you and this is how I look and this is how we interact. And when I need to set the boundary, this is how I look and this is how I interact. Before the pandemic, this was often the conversation about being at home or working outside the home as a parent. And friends who work outside the home would say, I love the fact that there are those boundaries. I can come home and be a better mom because I'm really with my kids when I'm there. Parents who work from home or or didn't, didn't have other work say, I love being available to my kids, but there's no boundary. Like right. that was always the downside. There is no boundary. And right. so you're right. If there were no boundaries, you're paying for it in the pandemic. You absolutely are. I worked in an agency long ago and people walking by and you give them the signal that you're busy. I so clearly remember this woman who was nice as pie, but man, she did not have that capacity to read my signals. Oh, she drove me nuts. I think that we have to be stand-ins for connection that they're not getting with their friends in person too. I think we have a responsibility to make sure that we engage in the conversations about the things that you know they probably would be preferring to talk to their friends about, but they're stuck with you. And we have to show up to those conversations too. Yep. Absolutely. I've learned a lot about Harry Styles because they're using me for that now too. I mean, my boys are not talking to me about Harry Styles, but my clients, I'm noticing that I'm having more conversations with them about things that they would be talking to their friends about. They want to sort of download all of their normal stuff with me in a way that wasn't usually happening before the pandemic. Oh, that's interesting. 
Yeah. Which just shows the need for that sort of connection and why we all have to be really sensitive to it. I had the most delightful conversation last night with a middle schooler about crushes and who were our celebrity crushes. And, you know, this is a normal thing for her to be thinking about, but I don't think she would have been talking to me about it if she had been able to talk to her friends more about it, but she hasn't been able to see her friends. Who was your celebrity crush? Oh, I think I've already said this, but Timothy Hutton, dreamy, Warren Beatty, interesting. And then later in life, Hugh Grant came along. My six-year-old love through many years was Harrison Ford. So, Oh, well, that explains a lot. But you married a guy who kept his little Star Wars figures in a case and wouldn't let anybody play with them. Oh, my God. Star Wars nerd. (laughs) So let's talk about the kids who were anxious or now are anxious and how they're coping and what parents should really be paying attention to. Yeah. So certainly a lot of kids, because we know how common anxiety is, a lot of kids went into the pandemic anxious and I don't know, honestly, that a lot of kids developed big, bad anxiety during the pandemic. I tend to think that the predisposition was there and that the anxious families got more anxious and the non-anxious families got normally worried about everything. But what we're seeing now or what I'm seeing now, and a lot of parents of teens are talking to me about this, is that my kid loves being home. They love not having to engage socially. This has been a dream come true. And I'm really, really worried about how they're going to transition back into school. And we've talked about this a lot, the difficulty, the challenge of being able to help your child deal with particularly social anxiety during all of this because we've been so socially isolated. So I've been giving a lot of assignments about how do you step into situations, whatever they may be, that would make you feel worried because I'm always on offense with this thing so we can keep practicing. But nonetheless, it's going to be hard to get those kids back into school if they have so enjoyed avoiding school. Yeah. But here's the thing, parents. I do think that there is a lot of big concern and big anticipation about kids going back to school, even non-anxious kids, but certainly teenagers going back to school after this period of, of being home. I think kids and parents should really learn from what this experience was like, including what it was like to get more sleep, what it was like to not be overscheduled, what it was like to sort of be in charge of your own schedule in a way that perhaps you weren't during the pandemic. So those are important things for parents to pay attention to. But I really want parents to recognize, for the most part, for the majority of the kids that I'm talking to, they are not afraid of going back to school in this idea that kids have forgotten to go how to go to school. I think we really need to pay attention to. I'm hearing a lot of catastrophic and anticipatory worry from parents as if their teenagers will forget how to go to school. Yeah, there was a listener question. Listen to the language that this very stressed mom feels about going back to school. She's made a lot of progress, but I feel that there is the possibility of a big cliff sitting there in September if school returns to normal in the fall. That may be a big leap for kids that have been out for a year or more in our case, and there may be little or no opportunity to practice or ease into it. Mom, if you're listening to this as an anxious mom, I hope you heard 
sort of the fear in that mom's question and the catastrophic anticipation, big cliff, right? There's a big cliff. There's a big hill. Kids know how to go to school. If your child is anxious and if getting to school was difficult before the pandemic, it could be more difficult getting them back. And you need to start talking about it now, but not in a way that projects your own fear or worry about it. You know, if you've got a teenager right now, they have been going to school since they were five or six. They haven't forgotten how to do that. Think about it in the same way of you getting back into the routines. I've heard adults talking about, oh, it's going to be hard to go back to commuting, or it's going to be hard to going back to getting dressed for work, or it's going to be hard to going back to sitting in meetings and having to pay attention rather than scroll on my phone and turn my camera off. There are going to be adjustments that need to be made, but you need to start talking now to your kids because we've got the summer before September, and you're going to be able to move around more during the summer, I'm pretty sure. You've got to start talking to them about how you're going to work on them stepping into their worry. I have this question in front of me, Robin, and if I look at the rest of this question, this mom has done a really good job of giving her anxious daughter opportunities to step in. She's been applying for jobs. She's been ordering in restaurants, trying to seek out social supports, playing sports. All of those things are really important. I just want to say sort of in general that we really need to be careful as parents talking talking about how difficult it is for our kids to go back to school in the fall. I don't think that's helpful language. I think we can use words like it's going to be an adjustment. It's going to feel weird at first. What have we learned from our pandemic experience that maybe the positive things that we want to carry over into this school year and being able to talk about going into it in a way that doesn't make it sound like a big cliff because it's going to school is not a big cliff. When my kids were transitioning into a new school, we, and it happened a lot for my younger son because of a variety of construction projects in Concord, et cetera. But we had a phrase, we would say first day, totally clueless, feel like you're never going to figure it out. First week, you start feeling like, all right, I can get the hang of this. First month, it's going to feel like you've been doing it your whole life. I think that's helpful language to use with kids as we're talking about re-entering school in the fall. Pay attention to the catastrophic language. Practice. Talk about it. Normalize it. And let's not do the catastrophic anticipation that is so easy to fall into. I can hear it in that language. Really pay attention to that. It reminds me of something else that you always say is that anxiety makes you forget your past successes. That's right. And so even saying, yeah, that's a great that's a great thing to, to bring up, being able to say, oh my gosh, let's think about all the times you've started school. Now, there may be some parents who are saying, okay, so fine, Lynn, but the beginning of school has always been a disaster for us. My daughter throws up. She refuses to go. We dread the end of August as she starts anticipating going back to school. Okay, so that's an anxiety issue that needs to be dealt with, but I highly doubt that it's going to be created or that it was created by the pandemic. And I think it's important to talk about how we're going to deal with your anxiety and not make this entry into the school year so, so different and so much bigger and overwhelming than it has to be. As we talk about that family's question, it really hits the point home that emotional management from the parent, it's just the foundation for really keeping the family healthy. It makes me think of the anxiety audit and what a critical tool it is for parents. Right. And that's what we really wanted it to be. That's what I wanted it to be. Because 
as I say so often, we can get caught up in the psychobabble of things and pathologizing things, of worrying about what's wrong with our kids. And I really just want to simplify it. I really want to put it in language that says, as plainly as I can say, there are patterns that we get caught up in that we don't know that we're even doing it, that they are not uncommon at all, particularly after the year that we've just had. And it really is so important for us to take a step back, look at our own patterns, figure out how we're perhaps transmitting our own stress and anxiety to our kids, and to figure out how to interrupt that. That's what the anxiety audit is about. It's for parents to go through to really recognize those anxious patterns for themselves. Right. You know, I meet with so many families and the parents that I talk to love their children, adore their children, want the best for their children. And so they come in saying, I need to help my child. And sometimes the first step is really, how do you look at your own patterns so that you can help your child? Because a lot of what we do as parents comes from the most wonderful place. It's just that we all come into parenting, certainly with our own baggage, but also just with the remnants of what life throws at us. And it really is so important and so helpful and should be so normalized that we step back and look at our patterns so that we can do what we want for our kids, that we're not modeling for them, not on purpose, what it is that creates stress and anxiety in families. Right. And you can't even talk about this without the context of 2020 as well. Of course. Almost every parent had a very challenging year for a variety of reasons. And those anxious patterns probably intensified. And so the goal of the anxiety audit is to say, okay, I got in more trouble with these patterns and these patterns. I'm aware of them now. And these are the ways I'm going to disrupt that pattern so that the lingering behavioral culture of the family kind of gets back on track. But 2020, if you think about it, how many parents would say, uh, yeah, no, everything went really smoothly or no, we didn't have to change our routine at all. We went through 2020 being challenged to handle big emotions, being more flexible than ever, having to adapt feeling overwhelmed, sometimes even feeling panicky. And if we remember that anxiety wants certainty and comfort, 2020 was not that year. Being able to just get a reset and, you know, maybe, as you said, anxiety has been around for a long time and the numbers are not good. I keep writing about that. I keep talking about that. And maybe what 2020 did serendipitously, if we want to use that word, but maybe what 2020 did was sort of help you recognize patterns that had been around for a long time that now it's really okay for you to look at and for you to interrupt. I'm excited that we're going to do the anxiety audit live on January 23rd as a small group workshop. Right. So we have the recorded version, and then we also have this live event so that if you have questions, you will have access. So it'll be interactive, which is pretty cool, I think. As I know this, all of your workshops always fill to capacity. So people should buy their tickets for the live anxiety audit if that interests them. Yeah, because we are purposely keeping it small. I want to be able to interact with the people who are attending. The anxiety audit is available at flusterclux.com. It's a self-paced course, or attend the live Anxiety Audit with Lynn and I on January 23rd 
and you can register on our website. Spots are limited to allow for Q&A with Lynn, so register now. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So Lynn, I have a listener question for you that I'm really excited to talk about. The topic is sleep. And teens. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know, uh-huh. an ongoing challenge of parenting. Absolutely. Highland needs some help balancing the self regulation or lack thereof with the importance we place on sleep. We want to make sure that our 15 year old gets at least eight hours of sleep. And honestly, by how long he sleeps in on weekends, I know he needs more. If he were super busy with schoolwork, the load is light with virtual school and no sports, I would be more understanding of some later nights. But seems like the nighttime video game sessions with friends begins at nine. And before I know it, it's 1230 and he has to be up at eight for Zoom school. Many parents seem to let their kids just self-regulate. If I went to bed before him, he would stay up until three easily. Honestly, pre-COVID, he was zapped from in-person school and sports and had all of his social needs met. But during COVID, I appreciate that the evening seemed to be the social times for these boys and gaming, but I hate this pattern. Am I just neurotic and over-controlling? Any tips for how to make expectations for a set and reasonable bedtime for a 15-year-old and gradually hand him the keys to be accountable to go to bed at that time without my nagging? Or do I just keep up with this pattern and pray one day it will kick in? Oh, I'm sure there are so many parents that can relate to that question. So I love the way the mom asked this question because she is doing such a good job of trying to see it from his perspective and recognizing the things that are important to him. So she's really thinking through it. And I wonder what kind of conversations she's had with her 15-year-old about this. 
eventually, mom, you want to give your teenagers the keys, but it's why we don't let 15-year-olds drive because they really uh, shouldn't have the keys entirely yet. He is going to need some structure from this, I think. And I think a way to go about it with him is to say, I totally get that this evening time is when you play video games with your friends. Also, so that's super important. So on the list of important things, that's very important. And I completely understand that. Also on the list of very important things is you getting enough sleep because sleep is really critical to your learning, to your mental health, to your general well-being, to your mood when you're living amongst the rest of us. Let us have a conversation about how we can make both of those important things happen. Clearly, his friends want to play video games from 9 to 12. You want him to have eight hours of sleep. I would negotiate with him and say, if the goal is eight hours of sleep and you need to be up at 8 o'clock, that means that the video gaming has to stop in order to make that happen. Then you say, can you get off your video game and go to bed at 1145? Do you need to get off it at 11.30 in order to do everything you need to do in order to fall asleep by midnight? So talk to him about it, but be very understanding that this is really important to him. And so you're not just coming in and saying, I've had it, right? And it doesn't sound like you're doing that because you're you're really being thoughtful about this. You know, if kids can't manage video gaming after midnight, then you can turn the system off. And I've had plenty of families who have done that. I had one teenager that was doing exactly what you're talking about, and the parents put a limit on it. We've talked about that circle thing, Robin, that you use, where it says you're going to be done at this time. It's it's absolutely an option for parents. You can just turn off their access to Wi-Fi at 1145, for example. One thing I would love to throw out there, and I wonder what you think of this, Lynn, is in terms of not handing them the car keys, but moving towards that stage to say, I get it that your friends are able to play games well past midnight, and I really appreciate you want to enjoy that with them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you stay up on Friday nights as late as you want Mm-hmm. And you can play till 3 a.m. Because also that gives them a him a chance on Saturday to sleep in and on Sunday night to go to bed earlier. Yep. But the condition is he gets to stay up as late as he can on Friday nights by then knowing that he has to do the, the midnight thing there are other times. Yeah, that's a reasonable negotiation to have with a 15-year-old. The other thing, too, is that you want to give him the opportunity to regulate himself So you may say to him, you know, going and and shutting off the Wi-Fi at 1145, that wouldn't be the first step I'd take. That would be the last step I'd take. So I would give him a chance to make this deal with you. Like you say, you can stay up on Friday night however long you want, but the arrangement is that you need to be off at 1145. The other thing you can tell him, and this is one of the strategies that that we can use with teenagers a lot, is let him make you the heavy mom. Let him say, oh, you guys, I wish I could stay on this longer, but my mom is, you know, or my dad, whatever, is 
totally saying I have to be off at 1145 and then they can all sort of, you know, complain about you. That was a strategy that I used to, that many parents have used with kids feeling uncomfortable in high school going to parties or different things where they say, oh, I wish I could go to that party, but my parent is just being such a pain and I can't believe she's so strict and she's, and you give your kid permission to throw you under the bus so that it saves some of their social clout. I would give him permission to do that. Say, totally blame it on me. And you can complain about me and you can say what a tyrant I am. I'm totally fine with that because you and I have a deal and we understand the importance of you sleeping and help him give him some language so that he is managing this a little on his own. These are the training wheels of him, like you say, regulating his sleep and that kind of stuff. It's a skill. You know, there are adults that are really bad at going to bed on time. There are adults that are really bad at not doing the things they need to do so that they can be prepared for work the next day. So we want to develop that skill. Here's an opportunity for him to try it out. There's going to be total failures. Don't think that he's going to get it right away. And then if the last straw is you've got to use a a device to cut off the Wi-Fi at 1145, go there, but see if you can negotiate with him first. Yeah. But over and over and over again, you say to him, I totally get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah, we totally get it. Lynn, if you could have all parents of teens do one thing or two things right now, what do you think that would be? I think, you know, empathy as always, right? I get it. I get it. Of course, of course. Oh my gosh, this is so hard. I think parents of teens can also share a little bit of what they're experiencing too with their teen to say, you know, I feel the same way that when I think about fill in the blank, I get those same feelings that you do so that they know that you're hearing them, that you're listening. As I said earlier, keep throwing out those invitations. And I think at this point, as we're going into continuing to be in this incredibly stressful, crazy time for so many reasons, here's an assignment I would love you to do, parents. I think it's a great time, actually, to leave a little letter on your teenager's pillow. And, you know, some parents don't feel comfortable having this conversation. But also the reason I like letters is because they get to read through the whole thing in private and they can have all the emotional responses to it that they want. And here are just a few sort of opening lines for this letter. Start the letter saying, thank you for, and then just start writing about all the things that you are thankful that they have handled during this. Another starter is, I'm impressed by how you've blank. And then the third one is, I recognize that you blank. So, thank you for, I'm impressed by how you've, and I recognize that you. Write a letter to them, put it on their pillow, leave it there. The next day, don't go like, did you read the letter? Just let it be there and let it be a very personal and intimate opportunity for you to communicate in a way that lets them have their space, that lets you be able to say all the things that you want to say and all the things that you think your teenager needs to hear from you. Thank you for being so supportive during this. Thank you for helping me care for your brother. Thank you for tolerating all the things that have been so hard for you. Thank you for being such a wonderful human being. If you haven't done this, I think it's time for you to truly and sincerely express to your teen how much you value and love them. They need to hear it. They need to, they need to hear it every day, but do it in a way that it leaves an impression. I confessed in our last podcast that I haven't watched Inside Out. 
And I said I, that I started lying about watching Inside Out because people were so appalled that I hadn't watched Inside Out. And I've been telling so many people to watch Soul, so many parents to watch Soul. And just the other day, somebody said, oh my gosh, it, did you, what did you think about it compared to Inside Out? And I was like, I haven't watched Inside Out. They lost their minds. Like they couldn't believe it. There was disappointment. There was shock. So anyway, I'm going to watch Inside Out. But I just wanted to let you know that that you're still lying to your little patients of having yeah, seen still, it. No, 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 no. The point is, I told the truth. I told the truth, and it was as, it was as awful as I thought it would be. There's one scene of Inside Out that I'm just curious if you cry because you and I cry at so many things so easily. We're easy criers. There's yeah. one scene in particular because that's obviously what Disney's really good at doing. You remember that movie Easy Riders with Peter Fonda and whoever? Yeah. I just had this idea of you and I sitting on these Harleys and the name of the movie would be Easy Criers. And we just like <laughs> drive we just like take our, we just drive around on our Harleys and just go go and just like cry at things. Yeah. <laughs> we'd go to the we'd go to the airport and just watch people saying hello and goodbye. We'd like drive up in our Harleys. <laughs> and then we would just sit there and like cry. Easy cryer. Yeah, that would be a very predictable story. <laughs> Join the Flusterflux Facebook group so that you can ask your question on a future episode. The Anxiety Audit is available at flusterclux.com. It's a self-paced course or attend the live Anxiety Audit with Lynn and I on January 23rd and you can register on our website. Spots are limited to allow for Q&A with Lynn, so register now. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.